This episode's sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked me not to read an ad. Enjoy the show! In 2005, an archaeological project was begun in Kiltishan, County Roscommon, Ireland. The goal was to find the ecclesiastical complex of a medieval bishop somewhere in the fields of Kiltishan. Instead, the team involved made a chilling discovery. Buried beneath some unremarkable flagstones of a ruined building in a lonely little field, were the crushed and splintered bones of almost 3,000 human skeletons. While unexpected, the find wasn't totally surprising, as mass graves from battles or the Black Death were not unheard of. An additional find, however, cast the manner of their burial in a more sinister light. Toward the edge of the field, the team found two more corpses buried not far apart in a manner that historians have come to call deviant burials. Reserved for the worst offenders of mankind, the deviant burials were meant to ensure the living would not have to deal with such sinners ever again. The team found the bones of the perpetrator's arms, legs, hands, and feet broken, twisted, bent and bound around large boulders. To top it off, literally, large rocks had been forcibly wedged into their mouths, almost to the point of jaw snapping. This type of burial served several reasons for the medieval populace of the undeceased persuasion. The boulders weighed down the corpses, the broken bones made movement difficult at best and the stones kept the mouths from closing on unsuspecting victims and blocked the soul from re-entering the body after death. The thought that the dead could return to terrorize the living was very real, and these special precautions helped mitigate that. No one wanted the evil dead to come knocking at the door demanding blood, like in the stories of old. Not to mention the 3,000 corpses next door, an army of revenants whose bones could have been broken and placed under heavy stones, you know, just in case. The threat of the undead and the supernatural unliving has always hung as a thin, cold fog across Glen and Dale on the Emerald Isle. We're taking a swig of Jameson and walking straight into that fog to discuss Irish vampires and other Celtic monsters on this episode of Blurry Photos. Hello, everyone. Welcome, 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 welcome. Welcome. <laughs> welcome to Season 8 of Blurry Photos. Here we go <laughs> again. I'm your host, David Flora. Hey, come on in. Take a load off. Set a spell. Why don't you let me pour you a Guinness and tell you a few wee stories of the unclean damned. Boy, you had, a, you had a nickel every time you got that offer. Hey, thanks for joining me on this merry little season kickoff episode. It's always a fun time of the year because we drink and we know Irish things. That's right. It's time for caveats, ladies and gentlemen. If you're new to the show, I don't know why I uh, have turned into uh, uh, Jeff uh, Goldblum. If you're new to the show, this one is a wee bit different than my normal fare, because I traditionally start each season with an Irish-themed episode, and to celebrate, I imbibe some good old Guinness and Jameson and talk about fun folklore and what amounts to an episode, as you have already been able to tell, of slurry photos. All in good fun. All in happy celebration. So, 
have a responsible drink yourself to enjoy this episode and slancha. Alright, let's get this death coach on the road, shall we? So, Blurry Photos has covered a large variety of Irish monsters and legends over the years, but there are many to talk about. This episode will take a bite out of some we haven't covered. I just literally stopped in the middle of the word covered. So remember, way back in the inaugural Irish Legends episode, that's number 25, uh, I verified that, we talked about the <laughs> we talked about the Banshee, the Dulahan, the Cloricon, the Puka, the Kelpie, and others. Uh, a lot of a lot of stuff. And in this episode, however, I'm going to tell you about vampires of Irish lore, including Avertach, the Daragdua, and since uh, we we sort of covered these in the Irish episode. A Legends episode. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit more on the Lanan Shi and the Slua. We'll also touch on the Far Darig, the Far Gorta, and the Koshta Bauer. It's a folklore filled Guinness and Jameson, mostly Jameson, driven episode of Evil Things. So pull your caps low and your coats tight. The night is upon us. The road is dark. rich lore of Ireland is full of fantastical beings and otherworldly events, but few are as dire as the harbingers of death. As discussed in episode 25, the Banshee's Whale is an infamous portent of doom, and the Dullahan, the headless horseman with a human spine for a whip who rode fast to a certain location to call out the name of someone about to die. These two forerunners of demise and the ominous pallor of calamity they brought with them were rightly feared. But what if I told you it was possible to experience all three at once? According to some tales, a few unlucky souls experienced exactly that with the Koshta Bauer the coach of silence, the dead coach. At night, when sick folk wakeful lie, I heard the dead coach passing by, and heard it passing wild and fleet knew my time was not come yet. Clack-clack, clack-clack, the hoofs went past. Who takes the dead coach travels fast. On and away through the wild night, the dead must rest ere morning light. If one might follow on its track the coach and horses midnight black, within would sit a shape of doom that beckons one and all to come. God pity them tonight who wait to hear the dead coach at their gate, and him who hears, though since be dim, the mournful dead coach stop for him. He shall go down with the still face, and mount the steps and take his place. The door be shut, the order said, how fast the pace is with the dead. Click-clack, click-clack, the hours chill. The dead coach climbs the distant hill. Now God, the father of us all, wipe thou the widow's tears that fall.
Katherine Tynan Hinkson. The Koch de Bauer appears to those about to die, though some have seen or heard it thunder by on its egregious errand. Pulled by four to six headless horses, sometimes it's empty, sometimes it's occupied by a banshee, sometimes it's driven by the Dullahan. One thing is for certain, however, to see or hear one signifies the imminent death of a close relative, or oneself. For once the coach of death enters this world from the other world, it cannot return empty. According to the folklorist Thomas Johnson Westrop, at sight or sound of the coach, all gates should be thrown open, and then it will not stop at the house to call for a member of the family, but only foretell the death of some relative at a distance. William Butler Yates described it as having a coffin mounted on it, and if you were to open the coach, a basin of blood would be thrown in your face. It's a bit rude. Westrop wrote about the Koch de Bauer in his 1913 work, Folklore, Transactions of the Folklore Society. I collected five stories, three of well-defined character, and give them in order of time as the dates can be fixed. The first appearance, on the night before June 18th, 1806, was related to my three informants most solemnly by their fathers and uncles. Two told it in a general and confused way, but varied from the story of the third, which I give only by omissions. Ralph Westrup of Adiflan and Lismahana, the latter places in Clare, but I could never learn where he died, lay sick unto death. His sons in the late dusk waited on the steps for the arrival of the doctor. Suddenly they saw and heard a large coach drive unto the paved court before the house. One of them stepped down to open the door, but the dark object rumbled past and drove down the long, straight avenue which was fenced on both sides. Two of the watchers ran after it, hearing it ahead of them. The noise stopped, and they expected to find the coach at the gate. They ran full tilt against the bars, the gate being closed and locked. They called up the lodgekeeper, and he was found to have been asleep with the keys still beside him. The sick man died the next morning. Lismahana, under its later name of Maryfort, afterwards became the residence of the O'Callaghan family, its present occupants. On the night of April 29, 1821, two servants, one of whom was Maddie Halloran, who died not long ago at advanced age, and the other was a butler named Richard Burke, were sitting up to receive a son of the family, Cornelius O'Callaghan, who had traveled for his health in vain and was returning home. Halloran, who told the tale with fearless faith and weary frequency, said that the heavy rumble of a coach roused him. Burke stood on the top of the long flight of stairs with a lamp and sent Halloran down to open the carriage door. He reached out his hand to do so, saw a skeleton looking out, gave one yell, and fell in a heap. When the badly scared Burke picked him up, there was no sign or sound of any coach. A little later, the invalid arrived, so exhausted that he died suddenly in the early morning. The present generation seems to have got the story from Halloran alone. On the night of December 11, 1876, a servant of the McNamara's was going his rounds at Innistimon, a beautiful spot in a wooded glen with a broad stream falling in a series of cascades. In the dark, he heard the rumbling of wheels on the Black Avenue, and knowing from the hour and place that no mortal vehicle could be coming, concluded that it was the death coach and ran on, opening the gates before it. He had just time to open the third gate and throw himself on his face beside it at the bank before he heard a coach go clanking past. It did not stop at the house, but passed on, and the sound died away. On the following day, Admiral Sir Burton McNamara died in London. A man living at Anachneel was returning from Tulla late one night. As he reached the corner of Fort Anne Domain, he heard a heavy rumbling behind him and horses trotting. Surprised after time by its not coming nearer, 
He looked back and saw a large dark mass with a figure on the box. He came no closer to it, and in a fright he hurried on. At a bend in the road he ventured to stand at the fence and look again. This time he saw the horses and carriage drive over the wall and ditch into Fort Anne. He fell, nearly insensible with terror, but hearing and seeing nothing more, hurried home. This was told to a steward at Maryfort about twenty years ago, and happened long after the sale of Fort Anne to its present owner in 1879. The present tradition of Fort Anne says the coach was heard at the deaths of a certain Westrops after 1873, but nothing happened after its last appearance. The phantom of a coach and horse was seen not far from Corifin at Cragmore not long since, but it's agreed that no death took place after the apparition. An equally vague story was told about 1870 at Addyflynn by a very old woman, Nori Halloran, whom the sound of the coach pursued one dark evening for a long way, but it did not pass her door, and nothing happened afterwards. Knowing your fate may one day lie in a headless, horse-drawn death coach is a sobering thought. But what if death was the least of your worries? What if death was the easy part? For there was something worse lurking in the lengthening shadows and bitter winds of twilight. Something even death took a step to the side for. The Sluach. The Sluach were briefly touched on in episode 25, but not nearly enough. Meaning host in Irish, as in a host of creatures. You could also think of it as an army, for the Sluach was a multitude of vile creatures, corrupt fae with an appetite for destruction. These wicked wildlings weren't offering guns and roses, but they were ready to slash and take that sweet child of yours. Equated with the European folkloric Wild Hunt, the Sluach were a little more aggressive than Vodun's riders, seeking to steal souls of the living, particularly those who were dying and before they were given last rites. They were more than happy to steal a perfectly healthy, unassuming person's soul, however. Different stories have the Sluach as some type of evil fae or the corrupt souls of egregious human sinners who were too hellish for heaven, too heavenly for hell. <laughs> In some tales, every Sawan, the Sluach emerge from the hell gate of Ireland in Connacht. They fly forth along with hellhounds and a flock of copper-red birds that can kill animals with noxious breath and ruin crops. In other tales, they are a constant danger, lurking in the dark, forgotten recesses of the world, creeping out when night falls to wreak their brand of havoc on the world of the living. Traveling at night was especially dangerous for this reason. Their writhing multitude in the skies would only be discernible as a tumult of horrible sound and shattered shadows not unlike a huge unkindness of ravens. They fly from the west, the direction of the setting sun and blessed isles where the dead are supposed to live. The Sluach have many connections to the Fae in stories, including the riding of plant stalks, shooting poisonous darts and wind blasts, and carrying the souls of the living up and away. Simply staying off the roads after sundown was not the only thing to do to avoid the Sluach. One had to keep from calling them accidentally by just saying Sluach. The more the word Sluach was said aloud, the faster the Sluach would fly to that spot. So don't call the Sluach by saying Sluach or by playing audio of someone saying Sluach a lot out loud. The Sluach love it. One also had to keep the heavy oppression of great sadness off their mind, as that could draw the Sluach as well. There were a few proactive defenses against their dark arts, however. First of all, if someone is dying or ill in your home, 
you absolutely must keep the doors and windows on the west side of the house closed and locked, as that's the direction the Slurok would fly in from. You can also simply run and hide from them. They'll chase, but they won't come indoors. If you're like me and want to puke from the mere thought of running at all, there is another option. Putting someone between them and you. As long as they get a soul, they'll be happy. Just don't get all butt hurt when you die and find yourself skulking the skies as part of the Sluach because you sacrificed an innocent to save your own ass. Congratulations, you played yourself. When it comes to aerial threats like the clamoring horde of the Sluach, getting <laughs> paid every time I say it. Oh, wish. I have to give honorable mention to a much lesser known threat deriving from the skies. The Bokharach. Please luxuriate in my Irish language accent. <laughs> so I had to mention these guys because they're just too great. They scream their way through the skies over battlefields, demon-like elemental spirits with the heads <laughs> of goats. Flying, shrieking goatmen haunting areas of combat and bloodshed. Variously known over the years as goblins, demons, and elementals, according to lore, they seem to show up just before or during battles and magnify the many emotions and madness of the fray. <laughs> They're like flying goatmen hype men. <laughs> They're just flying overhead yelling, take it to the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm my own audience today. And I love it. <laughs> Apparently. Okay. Um, they're often associated with another class of spirits. The Bananach, which were pale female spirits drawn by violence to fly around shrieking in the skies. People love screaming in the skies. Uh, spirit people, 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 spirits. Connections have been made between these spirits and the Norse Valkyries, uh, especially since they were also equated with the Celtic war goddess Bive. It's it's an apt connection if you consider Bive's common appearance in crow form. She liked to turn herself into a crow, and the way crows are drawn to battlefields and scavenging. While the shrill echoes of shrieking demons lingering in the mind could drive a person to drink, there was yet another dread-inducing monster that no amount of food or drink could allay. Sure, no amount of food or drink could even mitigate one's need for everyday sustenance. The cause of this insatiability has been linked in some myths to a creature called the Far Gorta. Yeats wrote, The Fire Gorta, or Man of Hunger, is an emaciated phantom that goes through the land in famine time, begging at arms and bringing good luck to the giver. That's what Yeats sounded like. He is a gaunt, ghastly creature, barely recognizable as a man due to his sunken features, his matted gray hair, and twig-thin arms which could barely hold up his alms cup. He is especially connected to famine, appearing at times of food shortage or perhaps just before. In some accounts, the Far Gorta is said to be the corpse of a person who is buried without last rites being said, or possibly dying of starvation and left to rot. When this happens, the grass that grows on the grave or spot of death will become hungry grass, a term you may remember from the episode on cryptobotany, I believe. This is a patch of cursed grass that, when someone walks over it, causes them insatiable hunger. Always keep some crackers in your pocket. Get that good old cracker pocket going. Cracker pocket. 
One thing to keep in mind if you ever run across the Far Gorta. Don't be a douche to him. And when he asks for food or alms, be generous. If you do, he'll grant you prosperity. If not, he'll curse you with poverty and starvation. One person's account from Ireland's National Folklore Collection tells of the Far Gorta not as an entity, per se, but as a feeling that took you or overcame you, saying, The Far Gorta was a feeling of great weakness and hunger, suddenly taken at certain places when going on a journey. Several people took the Far Gorta at the Hollies, halfway up Largan Bray. The first person who took the Far Gorta had sometimes to lie down and rest, or sometimes he made his way to the nearest house and asked for a bit of oaten bread. Some people carried a piece of oaten bread on a journey, afraid of the Far Gorta. The traveller is supposed to take the Far Gorta at the spot where a person or persons died from the famine. We've had our share of monsters so far, but I'm feeling a little peckish in terms of vampires. Let's get to a few examples of some, specifically of the Irish variety. Starting with a controversial otherworldly spirit, the Lenan Shi. A quote from Yeats. The Lanan she, your fairy mistress, seeks the love of mortals. If they refuse, she must be their slave. If they consent, they are hers, and can only escape by finding another to take their place. The fairy lives on their life, and they waste away. Death has no escape from her. She's the Gaelic muse, for she gives inspiration to those she persecutes. The Gaelic poets die young, for she is restless, and will not let them remain long on earth, this malignant phantom. William Butler Yeats. For those well-versed in Lananchi lore, hear me out, because I'm going to circle back to this quote in a bit. Yeats had Lananchi translated as fairy mistress, though the more technical translation is probably sweetheart of the fairy mounts, or barrow concubine. She's commonly grouped under the vampire umbrella, and that's due to her ability to enchant and drain the life force of her victims. Appearing as a captivating, seductive woman, invisible to all but her chosen victim, she seeks out young men with artistic passions, enchanting them with her otherworldly beauty. She becomes their muse, granting them enhanced talent. But of course, it comes at a cost. She demands complete devotion in exchange, feeding off the love and life force of her victim. But if she's ever spurned or loses interest in him, he will be left without inspiration, unable to create, unable to think of anything other than her. Already frayed and half-mad from her influence, the young man slips into deep depression and gives up his art 
and sometimes life in despair. She's been blamed here and there as the cause of many great Irish literary figures having brief but highly inspired lives. There have been additional tales of the Lanan Shi that bend more toward the vampiric angle. For example, one in which she grows bored of the arrangement between her and her artist and takes their withered or freshly dead body back to her lair. Instead of going full vampire and shotgunning their blood like a can of Guinness, she empties their blood into a big cauldron and uses that to feed from. Now to circle back to Yates, who, as it turns out, was instrumental in the creation of the Lanan Shi myth as we know it. Because there really isn't any mention of her before the turn of the 20th century, and when historians have sniffed at it a little closer, it starts smelling an awful lot like the concepts used by poets and writers of the Romantic period. For a while, to be a tortured artist used and abused by a coquettish courtesan was all the rage. It was quite chic to suffer a dark muse. Yeats's arguably misogynistic concept of this fairy muse has strong connections to similar notions employed by Romantic period predecessor John Keats, most notably in his poem La Belle Dame Sans Merci which translates to The Beautiful Lady Without Mercy. Oh, poor John Keith. He just loved her too hard. She don't get him. Should have just called it Lay Hussy. On account of her being a hussy. John Keith. Y'all stop. Speaking of hussies... <laughs> <laughs> if I had a nickel for every time I started to talk with that. <laughs> this next vampiric Colleen is not a hussy. You know how that goes. In fact, pity would be pertinent in her story, were it not for the eventual corruption suffered by the Darag Dua. Many, many years ago, there lived a young woman in what is now Waterford in southeast Ireland. Born into a modest farming family, this young lass was the epitome of beauty. Fair of looks and of heart, she was pined after by many, but had her sights set on a poor young farmhand who almost matched her in every attribute. Every attribute save one money. His was of a lower social class, but none of that mattered to them, and they fell desperately in love, making plans to eventually marry and start a family, and live joyfully the rest of their days. Though social status was of no concern to them, it was for the girl's father, and when she finally worked up the courage to tell him about her glad plans, he became angry and forbade her to see the boy anymore. She was devastated by her father's decree, but became even more distraught when he told her about an older man he knew, who was wealthier than them, whom he had arranged for her to be married to. Forced to comply with the arrangement, she was wed to the wealthy older man, a deep despondency growing from the pit of her stomach. Her father gave her away without a second thought, enriching himself in the process, and the young woman was taken to what would be her new home, a small room in the old man's estate. She was locked in, kept more like a pet than a bride. The old man was every bit as loathsome as could be imagined. He abused her physically and mentally, and before long, she looked and acted a shadow of her former self. Still, she clung to the hope that one day, the young farmhand would come for her and take her away from the hell she'd been pawned into. But he never did, and as it became apparent day after day, 
she resigned herself to the only way out she had. Secretly discarding the meager scraps of food she was given each day, she slowly, painfully, wasted away. The old man wasted no time in burying her in a small churchyard near Strongbow's Tree, County Wexford, and some say wasted even less time finding a new wife. Her father wasn't concerned either, as he had his new wealth, but the few townsfolk that were at her burial took pity, for they knew the situation and decided that the tradition of piling rocks on her grave could wait, as she'd finally found peace and didn't need to be disturbed right away. However, the tradition of piling rocks on fresh graves was not meant to disturb the dead. It was meant to keep the dead from rising again. Whispers of this legend tend to vary at this point. Some say just before she died, she swore a curse of vengeance on those who had a hand in her agony. Others say her raw desire for revenge was transcendent. Whatever the reason, without rocks to block her way, she did indeed claw her way out of the grave, thenceforth known as the Dodic Dua. The girl's dirt-stained corpse walked with furious purpose, driven by vengeance in her unbeating heart. She returned to her old home, where her father lay sleeping. She entered his room and loomed over the man who sold her into misery, rage welling from far beyond the interior of her cold body. She latched her teeth onto his throat and drained him of blood, breath, and being. With the warm red liquid coursing through her now, the Dodic Dua only grew thirstier for the life force she now felt, and her taste for revenge was still not sated. She made her way with conviction back to the house of horrors she had been forced into, and found the old man in bed with his new wife. The new wife screamed and ran while the old man lay wide-eyed with terror, as his dead ex-wife, ex-pet, shambled toward him, ruby-stained lips trickling down to mix with the dirt on her filthy burial clothes. People don't like to talk about the unfortunate girl and her unhappy fate, or the withered old husk people found of the old man, or the rumors of the Dodic Dua roaming the countryside on moonless nights. But they sure kept their children indoors, and young men were cautioned to be wary of an entrancing young woman in dark, lonely places, and to never, ever give in to their desire to follow her enticing beckoning. And never again was a fresh grave left without stones piled high atop it. The Dodic Dua is a fun tale, though the origin of it has been lost to the ages. It's entirely possible it could be another story made up relatively recently. The name is a conundrum too. Dodic is red in Irish, but no one knows exactly what Dua means. In almost every source for this story, it's translated as Red Bloodsucker. But red is really the only word that can be confidently translated. However, I did find a mention of her by Celtic folklorist Bob Curran, in which she's referred to as Dodic Dooley, and grabbing an Irish dictionary, that comes out to be Red Sucker. I'll take it. Though he does go on to say it's not this female revenant specifically, but a classification of blood drinkers. That story was my version of the tale, inspired by several versions that are out there. Some folks have wondered whether, if it truly was an old tale, it might have partly inspired this dude from Dublin. I, I don't know if you're familiar. His name's 
out there, you know, comes up from time to time. Bram Stoker, ever heard of him? I'll circle back a bit later for a bit more on him, a bitly, bit, bit, bit. But reading about the evil seductress the Dadagdua became, living only to seduce the innocent, her hunger for blood never satisfied. It's not unrealistic to hear some similarities between her story and elements of Stoker's iconic work, Dracula. I lay quiet, looking out from under my eyelashes in an agony of delightful anticipation. The fair girl advanced and bent over me till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was in one sense, honey-sweet, and sent the same tingling through the nerves as her voice. But with a bitter underlying the sweet, a bitter offensiveness, as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The girl went on her knees and bent over me, simply gloating. There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive. And as she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal, till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white, sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed to fasten on my throat. Then she paused, and I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips, and I could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle, as one's flesh does when the hand that is to tickle it approaches nearer, nearer. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips and the super-sensitive skin of my throat, and the hard dints of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with beating heart. The final fiend we'll visit tonight is a fascinating character with a solid pedigree. Mentioned at least as far back as the late 19th century, and before Stoker's bloodsucker entered the scene, Avartach terrorized a village in County Derry and needed a hero chieftain with some druidic advice to put him in the ground for good. Not to be confused with Avartach, one of the Tuatha in the mythological cycle, Avartach shows up in the 1875 work The Origin and History of Irish Names of Places by Patrick Weston Joyce. There's a place in the parish of Aragall in Derry called Slacknaverty, but it ought to have been called Lachnaverty, the Lacht or sepulchral monument of the Avertach, or dwarf. This dwarf was a magician and a dreadful tyrant, and after having perpetrated great cruelties on the people, he was at last vanquished and slain by a neighbor and chieftain. Some say Fionn McCool. Hmm. He was buried in a standing posture, but the very next day he appeared in his old haunts, more cruel and vigorous than ever. And the chief slew him a second time and buried him as before. But again he escaped from the grave and spread terror through the whole country. The chief then consulted the druid, and according to his directions, he slew the dwarf a third time and buried him in the same place with his head downwards, which subdued his magical power, so he never again appeared on the earth. <laughs> the lack raised over the dwarf is still there, and you may hear the legend with much detail from the natives of this place, one of whom told it to me. 
Totally accurate Irish accent simulator 2019. <laughs> that legend has evolved over the years, you know, like legends do. In another version, Avertach, still a tyrant and still intolerable, becomes consumed with jealousy after suspecting his wife of having an affair. One night he climbed out of his castle window and shimmied along a ledge in the hopes of reaching the window to his wife's room and catching her in an unfaithful act. He slipped on the mossy stone, however, and fell to his death, much to the relief of his subjects. They quickly took him to a nearby field, and despite his wicked ways, gave him a chieftain's burial, standing him upright in his grave. That relief was short-lived, however, when the very next day, a knock came at the door of one person's home. Opening it, the resident was horrified to discover the corpse of Avartach standing there holding a small bowl. He held out the bowl and demanded the terrified person's blood, cut from the wrist. Shocked at the wretched revenant before him, the villager complied out of sheer fear. Avartak slurped the crimson contents down and went immediately to the next house, repeating the interaction. Once some of the villagers got their wits about them, they rode hard to a neighboring village and begged for help from their chieftain, Kahan. Kahan agreed and rode to the village, found the door-to-door blood gobbler, stuck his sword through him, and reburied him in his grave. The people rejoiced and Kahan returned to his people, full assassin swagger. Once again, though, the village's relief was short-lived, for the day after, Avertach was back, knocking on doors and demanding blood from the villagers. Once again, Kahan was summoned, and once again, his sword was run through the menacing creature, and this time he was buried in a grave farther away people rejoiced, maybe a bit less this time, and Kahan returned, maybe a bit less sassy. By the third day, people were done with it when the knocks on the doors came again, and they apathetically emptied their veins to fill Avertach's bowl. Kahan, for some reason, was summoned one more time. Maybe the villagers found the receipt for his services and were looking for a refund, who knows. Perplexed, Kahan told them to give him one more chance to slay this construct of evil and went to consult with a wise man, which, depending on the storyteller, was a druid or a Christian saint. The wise man told him Avartok's magic had made him undead and mortal weapons were of no use to slay him, for he was already dead. He explained to Kahan there were four things to be done in order to stave off Ahartach's relentless encores of terror. <laughs> Spent a lot of money on that sentence. First, he must make a sword out of yew wood. Next, he must stab Ahartach with it and put him in the ground upside down. Finally, he must scatter thorns and ash over the grave and lay a large thick stone slab atop it all. Khan wasted no time in following this advice to the letter, and Avertach was in the ground shortly thereafter, never to rise and trouble the world again. Provided, of course, the stone slab is never disturbed. Hint, hint, wink, wink, uh... Avartach is described in many accounts as a dwarf and an evil sorcerer, with some people suggesting the name implied a short stature or a deformity. It's an entertaining legend, though some people will swear it has merit. There's even a spot you can go to that is considered his prison tomb. Actually, there are two spots which may be his resting place. One is known as Lecht Avertach, located in a field just north of Cranach, County Tyrone, Northern Ireland. The second is called Slachaverty Dolmen, 
in a field southwest of Garva, near Glenullen, County Derry, Northern Ireland. There are four or five names I just said there trying to put these places on the map. Forgive me if I've turned a Rembrandt of a map into a Picasso. I mean, I guess some folks like cubism, anyway. Uh, in any case... <laughs> how, how many did I just say? There's a lot of hs in there. In any case, uh, a big hawthorn tree stands next to a large stone, and folks are very reticent to mess with anything in the immediate area. Even more so after some recent urban legends sprang up about it in 1997. A very southern year, apparently. Uh, I guess there was a company that was hired to remove the tree and stone from the field, and when they tried to cut down the tree, their chainsaw stalled and broke down three times. When they tried to drag the stone away with a steel chain, the chain snapped and lashed a workman badly enough to make him bleed profusely from the cut. The blood dripped ever so conveniently to the ground by the stone. Hmm. And folklorist Bob Curran said he suffered a, quote, severe and inexplicable fall after visiting the site, end quote. Side note, uh, Curran had visited the aforementioned site southwest of Garva, so put your money on that one for being the two. <laughs> The Irish held that men, especially, could walk the earth after death, and the English law, almost to our day, allowed a stake to be driven through the body of suicides and murderers to prevent their spirit troubling the living. James Bonwick, Irish Druids and Old Irish Religions, 1984. I'll contrast that statement with some more of Bob Curran's research, which yielded Several tales from the Knocklade Mountain and South Fermanagh regions of Ireland. These tales mention women, specifically, who arose from the dead to either take children back to the grave with them, or eat their surviving families out of house and home. These undead nightmares would scare the living deadlights out of the living by tapping or beating on windows at night, but locked doors seemed to be enough to keep them at bay. Several Irish one-off tales mention the dead coming back from the grave to bother the living, for blood or mayhem. In an article on HistoryIreland. Oh boy, <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that many syllables. Where did I go? Uh, in an article on HistoryIreland.com, Curran talks about a certain sinister place that sometimes comes up when searching for Irish vampires. During a lecture in 1961, the registrar of the National Folklore Commission, Sean O'Sullivan, himself a Kerryman, mentioned a site which he called Dundracula, or Castle of the Blood Visage. This was allegedly a fortress high up in the McGillicuddy Reeks, which was inhabited by blood-drinking fairies. It was said to guard a lonely pass, but travelers in the region had to beware lest they become the prey of the Dadagduli. Unfortunately, O'Sullivan did not give any location for the evil fortress, nor does any further reference to it appear in any of his books. Neither does it appear in Brendan O'Chivan's list of place names for the barony of Drumcarran, which includes the McGillicuddy Greeks, in Topamonia Hiberniae. Just hold on to something, everybody. Just... Steady, steady yourselves. This does not mean it does not exist, and cultural historians such as the late Catlow Sonder and Peter Beresford Ellis have long been engaged in hunting through private papers to try and determine its location. Of course, this fine tradition of Irish bloodsuckers leads many folks to believe our boy Bram Stoker conceived his contemptible count based on these stories he heard growing up. Curran thinks it might be possible, especially since Stoker never visited Romania and had only scraps of info about its history and never mentioned Vlad Tepish in his notes also not far-fetched to think his work was inspired by another 
Irish Gothic horror author Sheridan Le Fanu and his 1872 short story Carmilla. It was one of the first works of vampire fiction and the first to feature a female who also happened to be a lesbian. Checking off a lot of firsts there. I'll leave you where we started. A field in Kiltitian and corpses upon corpses. And I hope that's not pronounced Kiltasheen. For the deviants wrapped around boulders with rocks jammed in their mouths, whatever they did, people certainly didn't want them coming back again. For the 3,000 bodies buried in the field, from what I could tell, the jury was still out on just where all the bodies came from, though I believe they ruled out the Black Death after dating some of the bones. But you do have to wonder if the placement of a certain building, or at least the effort to put several large, heavy flagstones over the top of those bodies, wasn't done as a certain measure of precaution. Especially knowing just how hard it was to keep a bad man down. And a vengeful woman dead. That's Irish vampires and other Celtic monsters. In a thorn-covered, you-wood-stabbed, blood bowl of a nutshell. And now for the malicious revenant you keep killing and killing... It keeps coming back for blood. Puns? If you're bored of the same old restaurants and need some inspiration for something new, let us be your muse and take you to another level of Irish-Indian fusion cuisine at The non Chi. At the non Shi, we've got many giant cauldrons in the back ready to dish up a meal that will sustain your life force for a while. Make sure to follow the non Shi on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure to follow us. I'm serious. If we think you're not following us anymore, we can't be held responsible for what happens to your taste buds. The non Shi! you find the non-chi a little clingy? Too many emails from their mailing list? The smell stays in your clothes for days? Maybe you need a new restaurant choice, like the gothic Irish-Mexican fusion restaurant, Dracula Cucaracha. Try the Bocanach shows right before diving into a big fried far torta, your choice of costa corn or costa flour torta. And come in every week for Avertajo Tuesdays, only at Dracula Cucaracha, in the strip mall next to Ireland's best barbecue joint, Bram Smoker. A them's a puns. Thanks so much for joining me for the Season 8 kickoff. Oh man, it's hard to believe this crazy train pulled out of the station seven years ago August. I mean, I guess it's six and a half years for now, but it's also hard to believe it took me this long to get a social media manager, but I sure done did. And if you haven't heard, Roxanne Smith has joined the crew of this rickety vessel as my social media maven. So welcome to Roxanne and huge thanks to her for her help with this episode as well. So last episode, or Deglaka episode, I talked to you guys about my expectations and how I saw the show going. A state of the podcast union, as it were. I gotta say, I've received so much support and kind words from you guys, it it truly left me speechless. Thank you for that. And thank you to everyone who reached out to offer some help of any kind. It was truly kind and generous of you all. I'll tack on a a bit to where I'm coming from. I think I still have stuff under control, uh, and I just need to tighten up the reins in certain aspects of how I work on the show. And I I think it's all still manageable. So I wanted you guys to be aware that I'm aware of the current state of the show, 
but I really appreciate everyone's kindness. You guys constantly prove you're the best fans out there. For real. Thank you. You guys know where to find me. Blurry Photos Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Blurry underscore photos on Twitter. And it would be great to have you following me on those. A five-star review on Apple Podcasts would be amazing. And don't forget to subscribe on there, too. Get some fun digital swag like sounds and music and extra episode and hanging with me on a live stream through patreon.com slash blurry photos. Hey, hey, I'm looking forward to season eight. Gonna be great. Lots of fun stuff in store. And yo, Miss Cryptid is right around the corner. How crazy is that? Uh, what a month indeed. Oh, I, what month. Oh, I, what month. But for this episode of Blurry Photos, I have been David Draculaura. Slan 